Hello, and welcome to Filmy Matters, a weekly podcast all about film. We're your hosts, Katie and Josh, a married couple who love to talk about all the ins and outs on movies. We'll have a different topic every week, with each of us choosing a film to discuss. For the month of October, we'll be picking a different horror theme for each week. And this week, we are kicking off with Haunted Houses. Ooh. <laughs> um, the movie that I chose to talk about this week is Crimson Peak, a movie directed by Guillermo del Toro, starring Tom Hiddleston, Jessica Chastain, and Mia Wasikowski. It is a gothic romance that takes place in the early 1900s, set first in the bustling city of Buffalo, New York, before transferring over to the much drearier English countryside. Um, It tells the story of a young girl named Edith who lives with her father in Buffalo and is swept off her feet and wooed by the dashing young baronet Tom Hiddleston or uh, Thomas Sharp and his very moody sister Lucille. Yes. One thing uh, right off the bat that jumps out of my attention um, is that a lot of people don't know is that Benedict Cumberbatch was actually originally supposed to play Thomas in the film. Oh. Um, Once that didn't pan out, Guillermo del Toro uh, actually changed Thomas's character a lot in the film Mm -hmm. uh, to support more of uh, Tom Huddleston's personality coming through to that. Originally, Thomas was supposed to be a much colder individual, and they were really going to play down on a lot of his falling in love with Edith. Hmm. Well, I can see that, because Benedict Cumberbatch can definitely play those aloof characters a lot more um, convincingly, I think, in a way. I think so. I know you think he's very handsome. Which one? Probably both of them, but I know you've talked about Benedict Cumberbatch. Uh, Yeah, I mean, they've both got pretty impressive cheekbones. Oh, okay. (laughs) Well, Jessica Chastain is is pretty beautiful herself. Mm Mm-hmm. I'll second that emotion. Um... Okay, well, yeah, I can see that, because the Thomas Sharp character that we see in this movie is definitely more nuanced and has this softer side to him. Mm-hmm. Uh, he comes across as being more vulnerable and wounded as opposed to just cold and calculating and ruthless, whereas it seems like Lucille has taken on those attributes where she's a lot more cold and calculated and much more violent (laughs) as we learn later on in the film so some of the attributes that stick out to me whenever i watch any guillermo del toro movie is his choice of color selection and in this movie it's particularly noticeable where at the in the first half of the film everything is very color coded in yellows and golds and greens it's very uh, lush it's 
it's very vibrant. They're the colors that are optimistic. They're happy. They're um, very full of life. And the colors that Edith wears throughout the movie are all shades of yellow. So she is definitely a symbol of that life and youth and light and vibrancy. She's a naive character, even though she is well-educated. And it seems like we're definitely supposed to get the impression that even though she has a good head on her shoulder, she's also quite innocent and naive. Um, And I think there's a clear color link between her colors of yellow and the butterflies that we see in the first half of the movie that are also all yellow. And when she's in the park talking with Lucille uh, about butterflies and the nature of life and Lucille talks about how back at home all they have are moths and the moths eat the butterflies in order to survive Uh, Edith is kind of turned off by that description and Lucille kind of like tries to reassure and be like well not really reassure she just comes back with saying that um, it's not sad. It's not, you know, devastating. It's it's just nature, and everything eats something else to survive. And that there's all these different life forms underneath the ground that are eating each other as they speak. And then, like the you know, the camera kind of goes down to show this butterfly being consumed by ants to just really illustrate that home and uh, illustrate that and bring it home and it's a pretty clear uh, correlation to what the sharps do Um, they consume the light and the money of all these young women as we come to find out one thing that really jumped out to me um, we notice in the beginning of the film whenever uh, Thomas Sharp goes and is trying to get the loan uh, to invest in this business of his which has been unsuccessful thus far um, one thing that uh, Carter Cushing who is Edith's father says to him is in America we bank on effort not on privilege that is how we built this country I think that it's interesting uh, because even whenever you're looking at that from the early 1900s, it's so relatable to today uh, because here the Sharps were. Uh, they had used women. They had tried to go through their money and do everything they could to invest in their dream. So that was interesting to me because there was that American greed um, that was taking place at that time Um, and then we can see that even though that was over a hundred years ago there was a lot of relatable themes to that Um, especially with uh, I think the situation we're in now um, Mm -hmm. with um, political divide and such but you know um, America's uh, banks on effort not on privilege so I think that that really says a lot yeah Um, The Sharps, you know, they 
are very linked to the imagery of the dark, shadowy moth that preys on other life forms and consumes them in order to survive. And you can see how that could even link to the way that like the industrial revolution consumed the countryside and capital capitalism has consumed Mm -hmm. the worker and you know it's not necessarily a sustainable model because like yes we all have to eat things to live but um just wanton reckless destruction doesn't you know it can't sustain you for ever good point one thing that i really wanted us to touch on was um, once edith does marry thomas Mm -hmm. and they go back to the family estate uh, it's amazing to me uh, to see here was Edith who had just this wonderful life in New York and lived very comfortably and here she comes to this desolate place where you know there are no neighbors it's dreary and then when they arrive at the estate you know the house is a wreck mm-hmm. um, one thing that uh, really stood out to me uh, in this film was um, her experience in the house uh, really was like a bad dream that I think we've all had mm-hmm. um, you know there was the faulty plumbing and you know the place is creepy and run down uh, you just felt like you were experiencing everything that Edith was here you are out in no man's land no family no contacts you don't know anyone other than the people you live with and here's this creepy old house that you're stuck in and you know I I think she kind of picked up on the fact as soon as they arrive something just wasn't right mm-hmm. yeah and it's, it's interesting how the style of the house and the sharps themselves mirror each other in a way because mm-hmm. like even Edith picks up on she's very detail oriented and she picks up on how Thomas presents himself back in New York to her father where he's wearing an expensive suit but it's a very old suit and it's very out of date and he's got well taken care of shoes but they're kind of starting to wear mm-hmm. and so you know he and Lucille both represent like this old world you know, uh, kind of prestige and title, mm-hmm. but it's more of an empty kind of title. It's like they're relics from the past. Mm. Um, Very American. Once again, we put on <laughs> such a facade, I think, um, to try to impress others, to try to be something we're not mm-hmm. living above our means, perhaps. Um, I thought it was interesting because, you know, there was no warning to Edith Um, you know it seemed as though that the Sharps did come from some nobility Mm -hmm. and uh, you know whenever they went back to actually live um, in the Sharp family estate you know you you can tell Edith is a little taken back whenever she got there um, and she was polite about it but Mm -hmm. there was you know no warning you know and there was no warning that the house was a hellhole and that you know the roof 
was um, halfway fallen down and you know there was no uh, you know poor lighting and all these different things mm-hmm. um, I think that she was a little bamboozled because she thought that you know she was still going to be living pretty high cotton uh-huh. yeah I think I think uh, you know that English accent and that title can carry quite a bit of weight right <laughs> especially when you're a romantic young lady who's you know kind of writing her own romance novel mm-hmm. gothic romance novel and now she finds herself in the middle of one mm-hmm. so I think she had this idea in her head while she was swept off her feet you know going to this grand estate you know Allerdale Hall mm-hmm. um yeah and then she was uh she was met with the reality <laughs> yes very very quickly as so many young naive married women are okay <laughs> Let's talk about some of the scares. So one thing I liked about this movie was that when it started, it started. Mm. You know, within the first two minutes, you know, we're already seeing, you know, some ghosts and some freaky stuff going on. Mm -hmm. And I like that uh, because unlike a lot of other horror movies, especially period pieces, you have to wait uh, and let some time you know pass and you got to build some character um, relationships there before the the haunting star but mm-hmm. I mean this thing with the original haunted house you know before we get to Crimson Peak um, it starts out when the movie starts so we already see some some action right away and then I, I think Del Toro did a good job with um, not having a lot of lull in this film mm-hmm. there was you know a lot of uh, darkness and um, scary stuff, you know, going on pretty much um, throughout most of the whole film. There mm-hmm. wasn't a whole lot of gaps there, so that was that was good. Yeah, and and Del Toro definitely is like a master of design and ambiance and mood, and uh, he communicates a lot through his color palette and his art design. Mm -hmm. And so you feel like you're in a gothic horror, even when you don't see ghosts. Right. Um, And there's not really that kind of classic reliance on jump scares that so many modern horror movies seem to rely on. There's a lot more atmosphere and subtlety. Although the ghosts are quite grotesque right (laughs) quite detailed they're quite juicy which is the thing i love with all del toro films i mean he is just so meticulous whenever it comes to all of his uh creepy ghost things and you know all these um uh, twisted enchanted characters that you see in some Mm -hmm. of his other films um it really i'm telling you del toro is just a master of uh bringing a bad night Nightmare to the screen. Mm-hmm. And making it beautiful to look yes, at. Yes, very, very beautiful. Uh, you know, it it was another thing. Um, I think that just being in the old scary house at Crimson Peak, that was enough for me. 
already but then whenever the ghosts you know start showing up mm-hmm. uh, and then you're finding out more and more about um, the torture and that that has went on mm-hmm. uh, it only gets worse but I mean I I would have been content with just the the haunted scary house let alone before the ghosts start coming out so and I feel like with so much that he does in his movies his art design is meant to continue to tell a story even without you know explaining or dialogue or anything like that so like each of the ghosts tells you something about how they died right when they're there and um that's something that i noticed with again with the colors um the ghosts seem to be color-coded with their method of death correct so edith's mother dies of a disease and we know that from the very beginning of the movie and when we see her ghost later on she's completely in black now all the ghosts at crimson peak they're all in red so they all met violent ends in addition to their corpses then being held within these clay pits and later on with two other ghosts which I'm assuming we don't mind to give away spoilers. No, I think everyone's... Yeah. We'll assume everyone's seen it at this point. Yeah. Um, so later on, whenever Thomas meets his unfortunate end, he's in... He's all white, but with, like, tinges of yellow here and there, like, with the eyes and things. And then Lucille's ghost is also all black. Was it more like black or was it a blue black yeah it was black it was black it was all black so i'm thinking so the impression that i got was that what we were trying to be told maybe with the way that her ghost was colored because she didn't die from a disease but she was definitely mentally ill yes yeah. and so perhaps there was something that was very sick about her mentally and she was in such I guess maybe like a diseased or bleak kind of state of mind or she was so twisted Mm -hmm. well and you get little hints of that as she talks about her mother Mm -hmm. you know um, I you get the impression you know these kids were exposed to probably some pretty heavy stuff Mm -hmm. Um, you know there's a lot of different references uh, to the messed up childhood in that house so God only knows what happened to Lucille uh, that, you know, really kind of made her snap one day. Which, leading into that, let's just talk about uh, I know I'm a fan, but, you know, Jessica Chastain was amazing in this. Mm-hmm. Um, when you look at some of her other characters um, that she's played, you pick up on the fact you know that she can just delve into whatever role necessary but whenever you see her in crimson peak i mean she's uh, from the very first scene you can tell something's just not right and she is mysterious and a little creepy throughout the rest of the picture um also kudos to her because i found out uh, she actually learned to play the piano just for that role that was actually her playing in the film okay yeah that's that's usually a hard thing to fake whenever you have like a full-on 
you know, visual of that right. person playing. I was really wondering how they CGI'd that. Yeah. It made, <laughs> made sense. It was why it looked real. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I agree with that. She has this very restrained demeanor whenever she's there in America. Like, you can tell that she's trying very hard to maintain this facade mm-hmm. of respectability that she has. And. I think it was probably easier for her to kind of get away with that in a way because she was expected to kind of entertain and be pretty. So, you know, not so much as like engage with people beyond just politeness, you know, because mm. like women were expected to be engaging and demure and polite and, you know, just be able to make small talk and then have a few like a few talents right um but i mean think about also how many people with mental illness um you know have to put on that character every day mm -hmm. out in public whether it be the workplace or social society um, whatever that is so i think in a sense we all play the role pretty Mm -hmm. well but then when it was back to crimson peak uh, uh, Lucille uh, let her hair down a little bit whenever they got home, I think, to say the least. So, yeah. Figuratively and literally. Yes, yes. <laughs> they were, the, the Sharps were back in their natural element, in their, in their home environment. And I think kind of hearkening back to, like, when Edith first the condition of the house, it's almost like like a first glimpse into the reality that she's stepped into you know it's it's crumbling it's decayed it's dark it's not all it's cracked up to be um which is it's like the house is kind of like an insight into the psyche of the sharps and the sharp family right and this was another film too um yeah you know we see this in very few films but it it's another one too where the house has its own personality Mm -hmm. you feel like that it's a character in the film i will say um you know i i knew some bad stuff was about to happen whenever i saw that the clay was red at Crimson Peak. You know, when you see this blood-colored clay Mm -hmm. that is being uh, mined from the ground, Mm -hmm. uh, I I knew this can't be good. Yeah, and from just from a practical standpoint, I don't know why you would build a house on top of a squishy mine. (laughs) But yeah, the the, the blood red clay just oozing from the floorboards and dripping down the walls it's it, it's like a literal another yeah. del toro mastermind move uh, let's talk about getting near the climax of the film. Uh-huh. Uh, I was on the edge of my seat uh, whenever they were outside in the heavy fog mm-hmm. and it was time for the final showdown. Mm-hmm. Uh, the stage being set for that scene you know it's daytime but it's so foggy you can't even tell mm-hmm. um you know there's here that's this game of cat and mouse between edith and lucille and then there's thomas and uh, i think they really did a good job the efforts of the acting and directing uh to really start to to close out the film in some heavy suspense 
Mm-hmm. And, like, even the... Like, the way that the characters moved in that finale were even evocative of the type of personalities that they had. Like, Lucille's very predatory, and she's, like, darting in and out of places and really, like, has this whole stalking, you know, kind of predatory way that she moves. And uh, Edith is definitely more on the defensive... You know, yeah, by, by that point, she gets the drill. She's kind of figured out mm-hmm. um, what's going on there. So, mm-hmm. And very much like the butterfly that she's compared to continuously throughout the film, um, she's kind of undergone this transformation as the movie has gone on. And, you know, by the end, she's become a more fully realized mm-hmm. woman who's very capable of defending herself you and your butterflies (laughs) well it's interesting too because like even the dog that shows up that used to belong to one of the other mrs sharps is a papillon and papillon is butterfly in french okay so there's a lot of this butterfly (laughs) butterfly moth imagery of like transformation and um, you know emerging out of darkness resurrection Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. i love it so, I'm sorry, were you going to say something? I was just going to say, we, we might be remiss if we didn't touch upon the one of the uh, themes of uh, incest. <laughs> oh, well, you know. Do we have to talk about it? Well, I, I, just, I just thought I, I would want to highlight on, like, how, um, you know, some of the, like, psychology aspect of it sure where it's like they're very unhealthy attachment type styles like and you can see how that would have kind of naturally developed since their mom locked them up in the attic ever since they were little so the only people they ever had for company or for affection were each other right and with Lucille being older she was the one who had all the influence on Thomas and without have and she was basically like his mother figure right throughout his whole childhood and you know we become very very heavily influenced by our very early attachment figures very early on um and i kind of wonder cuz we we do hear from Lucille that their mother was physically abused by their father that he broke her leg was it her leg yes yes so he broke her leg and so we know that he was primarily absent and then when he was there he was violent and so i kind of wonder if maybe the mother didn't try to lock them in the attic in kind of a misguided way to protect them i doubt it you doubt it (laughs) i think she was crazy as hell whenever you you hear the references and you know you see the the portrait in the house and that i I just didn't get a vibe at all of someone who was maternal yeah yeah not yeah definitely not a a protective mothering you you try to see the best in everyone (laughs) 
<laughs> one thing that it made perfect sense though Thomas was actually able to um, use and dispose of these women so easily with the previous marriages uh, trying to obtain the money uh, for his uh, hair-brained clay pumping machine mm-hmm. uh, but I mean think about it it was easy for him to play on those women mm-hmm. uh, take everything they had and then kill mm-hmm. them because mm-hmm. he's in love with Lucille so you know he was already um, had passion for someone so those women were just nothing to him yeah and I got the impression that Lucille is like the mastermind behind this plan oh yeah absolutely (laughs) and uh, she used Thomas oh yeah Thomas is just as much a pawn as these women are for her gain um, because she can't imagine a life outside of that house right that house is her whole entire life that house is her um and Thomas is hers mm-hmm. and um yeah I, f- I find Thomas to be such a tragic figure well, see, in that and, way and I think that's where you and I differ uh-huh. um, especially at the end of the film uh-huh. uh, when it gets towards the end um, you and I had different takes on this mm-hmm. you uh, I know from your perspective and, and you can hit on that you uh, felt that it was kind of depressing and that um, you know here was this shattered love story and mm-hmm. you know um, it ended tragically that he really did fall for Edith in mm-hmm. the end but I don't buy that I don't buy it at all they were both con artists you know the sharps I mean here were people that took advantage of everyone they mm-hmm. were you know snakes it was all just a facade so even if he did fall in love with Edith as mm-hmm. far as I was concerned it was too late because yeah. I just I had no sympathy for him in the end I had no sympathy at all mm-hmm. Maybe that's why I'm becoming the therapist. <laughs> Maybe, yeah. I mean, it was very, very superficial on my end, but I felt nothing for that character. When he was gone, I was a little happy inside. And oh. it was just, you know, he he just, I didn't trust him from the beginning. I, I see, I feel very empathetic towards him. And, <laughs> and I see, like this person who was you know abused and you know groomed ever since he was born by this sister who was a complete monster yes (laughs) and he never had any other options like if he left the house and tried to strike out on his own. I mean, all they had in that family anymore was their title. Like, they, they, all they owned in the world was the house. So, it just seems like they were both trapped there. But, like... I don't know. Like, it, he just seemed like a very broken conflicted sad person he was you know he was but at the same time you know pick yourself up by your bootstraps he could have stayed in america the land of opportunity he didn't have to go back 
you know so i didn't you know i don't no sympathy for me on that <laughs> end he he was a you know he was kind of a a snake well i guess we'll we'll have to disagree on oh, that yeah, aspect we, we disagree a lot yeah and when we still love each other <laughs> we're still together one of the things um I liked about his ghost character design was that it was very reminiscent of the ghost boy from Devil's Backbone. Um, yeah. One of Guillermo del Toro's earlier yes. movies. Now that you say that. And I mean, the ghosts in general were kind of evocative of that with like, you know, these fluid type things like eking out of different cracks and crevices and floating off into the ether kind of like smoke or water or whatever drifting out of their orifices yeah. <laughs> things and like misty clouds behind them I just find it interesting that the kind of mythos that Guillermo del Toro has built around the afterlife it yes. just seems like the ghosts are very um I don't know. They're, like, very reminiscent of the earthly plane. I don't know if that makes any sense. It does. It does. And you get something different with every one. Mm -hmm. You know, it's not uh, clearly um, some of these uh, filmmakers that you see, uh, so many of the same personality in their different characters. You get something different with Del Toro every time. So, um uh, my opinion, I think Crimson Peak is highly underrated. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, more people don't, you know, there's a lot of people who don't know about this movie. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that it's uh, a hidden gem. I wish that it would have gotten some more notoriety at the time. But um, on a scale of one to five stars, I give it four. Um, you know, it's beautiful, beautiful visual aesthetic to the film. Uh, absolutely great performances by the three main characters. Um, so much detail in the directing. Um, you know, we have all these things with ghoulish ghost, haunted house, uh, incest, um, you know, all of this stuff goes on. It, it just comes out to be a great movie. So mm-hmm. I oh, liked it. I would give it a four out of five as well. All right. Wonderful. All right. Well, next up we have Paranormal Activity. Yes. Paranormal Activity was my choice. Um, you know, <clears throat> there's not a lot um, of backstory to give on that because uh, Oren Pili, who was actually the director on that, uh, it was the first film he ever made. Uh, it was actually shot in 2006, but it didn't release until 2009. It had a very, very hard time uh, getting up off the ground and getting someone to actually uh, put their neck out for that type of a film. Uh, one thing that was interesting was that um, Pali actually made the film on a budget of $15,000. Oh, wow. He shot the whole film on a home video camera Hmm. you know you don't think about that as you're watching it but the entire thing all is is on that home video camera and that was actually his personal house that was in there in the film well that's a a very budget friendly movie it was very budget friendly (laughs) so 
we'll get into that a little bit more. But um, so uh, greatest thing uh, in this film was uh, it was a very jump scare film even though you know you never actually see a physical being of the actual um, demonic force that's possessing the house um, you know uh, there was a lot of anticipation a lot of you know thrills and thrills and eerie feelings about this um, <clears throat> I love this as a haunted house movie because it is so relatable um, mm. I think this is everyone's worst nightmare I don't think there's probably a person out there who hasn't at some point had the thought cross their mind of what if this place I'm at is haunted. In this film, we see Mika and Katie who um, buy this new house in a very suburban area. And we see uh, right out of the gate coming into this film, uh, you're kind of fed a little bit of information about how Katie's always had some weird stuff going on. And so they decide to just start to film every aspect of their daily life in the house. Mm -hmm. um, you can see where this is going right away. Uh, the great thing uh, to me about the film was that, um, you know, these were just normal people. Mm -hmm. uh, in the beginning, um, you know, in the first um, 10, 15 minutes, you know, you kind of like Mika. And he seems, you know, kind of goofy, but kind of a funny guy. And maybe someone, you know, everyone has a friend like him. <laughs> and I, I think Katie's wonderful. Um, she just seems also kind of like Edith. She's innocent and just kind of reminds me of the girl next door. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, um, but it doesn't take long. To me, uh, you know, as far as personality-wise, Katie doesn't change a lot through the film until, you know, you start getting to the bad, bad parts. Mm -hmm. But I think, you know, within just a few days, you start to see Mika really change. You know, I, I found myself, you know... Uh, by the end of the film, uh, he was really grating on my nerves. He wasn't that yeah. guy, you know, <laughs> that we all know. He was really just kind of an asshole. Yeah, he took the words right out of my mouth. No, I was just okay. about to say, he's an asshole. Yeah. Um, yeah, I hated Mika. <laughs> Even from the very beginning, he kind of has like these, like, it's like, I know that they're both in their early 20s. And men, especially in their early 20s, are kind of dumb. Sure. And they're a little selfish. Right. And self-centered, generally speaking. And um, I like how they established at the beginning, like, a good reason for them to both be at the house all the time. Right. Which, you know, he's a day trader. He works from home. He's on the computer all the time. And she's an English student, so she's not at school. She's at home. She doesn't have a job. Um, but it's like he thinks very highly of himself and he has an over inflated sense of confidence like he can do anything he can right. take care of anything he knows more than anybody and no matter what his girlfriend says no matter what the people they consult with say no matter what their one friend that we see says he's gonna do whatever he wants to do 
because he's the man with the plan. Yes. <laughs> uh, let's let's go a little deeper with that. Uh-huh. So when some of the activity starts, uh, they reach out to a... Uh, He's a psychic. He has experience with ghosts, he says, but not with demons, which in this film, and I would argue probably in most circles, are described as being non-human entities. Mm -hmm. Um, So they're not a spirit that's ever inhabited a, a person. And he doesn't really go into too much like religious talk or anything Mm -hmm. like that he just says you know we don't really know what they are we just know that they were never a person Mm -hmm. um and psychic is able to tell her that this entity has followed her around ever since she was a child because as this psychic is interviewing her and me get together she talks about her history growing up with this presence where she saw it first when she was eight years old and then again when she was 13 years old and i guess we're led to assume that she hasn't seen it in between but it's always followed her you know that's the thing that's there was she may not have seen anything but there was still that eerie presence Mm -hmm. so it just kind of makes me wonder like why does it lay dormant you know and what triggers it right um maybe it didn't like mika yeah, nobody would argue with that. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's, let's jump back to the, the psychic. So, you know, that's mm-hmm. uh, back to, as a part of my um, rant earlier. You know, the, the psychic is, he's a nice guy. There's yeah. nothing kooky about him, mm, you know, normal. as we all would probably expect. Very normal. Mm-hmm. Uh, has the best of intentions. Mm-hmm. Um, tells them, you know, hey, you know, don't conjure the spirits don't mm-hmm. do anything like that what does mika do he turns right around and gets a ouija board yep he's gonna take care of matters himself so as time goes on and more freaky stuff starts happening mm-hmm. uh, all of which is being picked up by this camera um i really um <clears throat> it's hard to miss the fact that the more uh present this evil entity is making itself known Mm -hmm. the less mika is the less mika cares about katie yeah it's more about him it's more about him and that damn camera Mm -hmm. and it has nothing to do with her towards the end Mm -hmm. it's all to satisfy him taking care of the situation he he didn't care about her at all you could tell uh the more time went on yeah, it was all about his masculinity. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Toxic masculinity. Mm. <laughs> um, but yeah, I think that makes a good point because it's like there's there's different stages to um, well, according to the Catholic Church, there's different stages of possession. Sure. So there's like um, I can't remember all the different you know order that they go in but there's like infestation and oppression and you know all this stuff so it's like it makes its presence known and you're not totally sure what it is yet but then the more you poke at it the bigger and badder it gets right and the bigger and badder it gets the more stress and strain that it puts on the both of them Mm -hmm. and it's wearing them down and so it's trying to wear katie down so it can possess her and take over her body. And she's obviously the weaker of the two. 
And uh, I think what you brought up is a good point in that it's also wearing on Mika in that it's making him worse. Mm -hmm. Like, it's making him, like, go down in very like his very base kind of nature Mm -hmm. where he's very self-centered and it makes him even more self-centered as the movie goes and he also sees this entity as someone who's going to challenge him Mm -hmm. and uh, as most uh, toxic masculine characters are they don't want to be challenged you know yeah they have to be the alpha male at all times so you know he didn't like this thing you know you notice several times in the film it's my house my house (laughs) you know get out of my house yeah Um, so I mean, you see a lot there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and he's, I mean, even from the very beginning of the movie, he's kind of pushy with Katie. And, like, even with the camera, he tries to still kind of make it about him. Like, he keeps trying to goad her into, like, making a sex tape with the right. thing, like, over and over. <laughs> like, trying to wear her down, too. Right. Like, with his own intentions and not just with that but like with the Ouija board or with the whole investigation it's like no it's gonna be my way or the highway right and you know he just keeps wearing her down too and it's like dear god it's like if you've got a demon in one house (laughs) and this toxic boyfriend on the other Mm -hmm. it's like I don't blame her for like losing it I felt so bad for Katie because uh you know it it reminded me of um, that girl we all know from high school who's a good girl and and you know she's she's just um, all things right and then she's with that jock or whoever mm. you know that's just um, terrible you know what he's doing you know behind her back but you don't want to say anything and she's just enamored and you know uh, it kind of reminded me of that mm-hmm. but then you can see more and more as the film goes on uh, Katie as we know her through the story starts to um, become detached from everything around her Mm -hmm. and we start to see more of this uh, vessel I think that there's just kind of almost like she's on autopilot um, and we know something is not right yeah, the you can tell that the demon is successfully breaking her down. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So all this freaky stuff happens. It's caught on camera. They never do get to um, get in touch with the demonologist that was yeah. supposed to come to the house. Johan Averys. Okay. He was a demonologist in L.A. who is conveniently not reachable by the time that Katie actually has permission from Mika to contact him. Uh, Exactly. (laughs) You know, so obviously, if you haven't saw the film, um, you know you realize that um, it's not going to end good usually with these haunted house movies especially as a uh, caught on camera type film Mm -hmm. Um, so um, 
especially when you have like the message from the cops at the beginning of the movie. Yeah, <laughs> we yeah. The families of <laughs> yeah, yeah. You pretty much um, before the movie even starts, you pretty much know this is this is going to end in some kind of massacre. So yeah. Uh, one thing that was interesting was that there never would have been a paranormal activity as we know it if it was not for Steven Spielberg. Oh. So, uh, Oren Pali actually um, took this film uh, to different uh, film festivals. Mm-hmm. Uh, nobody would touch it. Hence, you know, three years down the road from yeah. it being made is whenever it's finally um, goes into major theaters. Mm-hmm. But Spielberg somehow caught wind of it. Uh, scared the hell out of him, apparently. Um <laughs> What I've read was that uh, he started it yeah, alone in the evening mm-hmm. and then ended up stopping uh, over halfway through and then watched it in the daytime, the rest <laughs> of it. So um, he put it, uh, he got DreamWorks to get behind the film. Uh, his only condition was he wanted the end changed. Mm-hmm. So in the original um after oops, spoiler alert <laughs> after katie who is possessed by the spirit mm-hmm. kills mika mm-hmm. she actually um stays there with the body uh sitting in a rocking chair and then you know there's this fast forward mm-hmm. through uh the end where it's just days on end that she's sitting there rocking mm-hmm. and he's laying there finally some friend comes to check on him mm-hmm. sees that uh mika's dead and then you know that katie's there in the rocking chair she kills him downstairs mm-hmm. in the original mm-hmm. um and then she leaves and then next thing you know the police come Mm -hmm. and katie's killed by the police oh so all of that was taken out so there's three different endings three different endings yes um also one other thing that dreamworks wanted to do was uh after they uh, saw that they had some gold with that Mm -hmm. they were going to remake it on a much bigger budget mm-hmm. and have actual notable stars playing the roles um once they apparently got to looking at the contract they realized that the agreement was they couldn't do that uh and i think that wise Oren Pali was really smart with that because he wanted uh, his cast members to be people who nobody knew, which actually, you know, that was great because it led into more of the the um, thought process that so many people had that it was real footage. Right. Yeah, it's got because it's kind of like the same, you know, framework that the Blair Witch Project had, which is right. why so many people believed that it was true because nobody knew who those kids were. <laughs> right. Which, by the way, both of them did a fantastic job. Um, first films, mm-hmm. I thought the acting was great. Mm-hmm. So what most people don't know is there was no script to that film uh, at all. So Really? It was no script. So uh, they knew that it was going to be... Uh, a haunted house movie they mm-hmm. knew you know the basics of each scene as far as what the setup was mm-hmm. but um what actually um 
Warren did was he just told them uh, he threw out uh, dialogue and just mm-hmm. said go with it so mm-hmm. everything they did why it was so natural was just into character yeah. so which I think was another reason this this film was just so masterfully done okay yeah it seemed very much like just two regular people having conversation with each other as opposed to reading off a script um I imagine there would have had to have been some very basic framework with like her backstory and stuff. But, yeah, sure. But not like. Yeah, all the the actual their dialogue was just all mm-hmm. you know winged as they went along. So, mm-hmm. which is great. Mm-hmm. Um, the performers that played Mika and Katie uh, were both paid five hundred dollars each. Oh wow. Yes, um, which you know they had no problem with. Well then once the film was such a success Mm -hmm. they went back and negotiated their salaries and uh, they were compensated in undisclosed amounts. Oh good. Yes, yes. That's fair. (laughs) So um, once Paranormal Activity um, actually got to be released well let me back up. Before the release Mm -hmm. of Paranormal Activity um, they did a test screening. Mm Mm-hmm. And so, uh, once the test screening was over, they said that there was no way they were going to fight trying to um, take that concept and go with a larger budget Mm -hmm. and notable actors because Mm -hmm. um, it was just, um, you know... Hollywood gold seeing the reaction and how people um, they said that there were so many people in that test screening just getting up and leaving they couldn't handle it you know some people were on the verge of passing out you know so that's what that's what you want with the horror films yeah it's like that hype from you know older horror movies like Psycho and Last yes. House on the Left and yeah. stuff like or The Exorcist you know people fainting and falling out yeah you love it um, so in the end, uh, this little fifteen thousand dollar budgeted movie made a hundred and ninety million dollars in profit. That's a nice return. It is a nice return, <laughs> and we could have lived without those sequels that we had on that, where they tried to keep milking that cash cow. Yeah, like the second one, I think was okay. It was okay, but. Yeah, the more that they tried to milk that whole concept and then try to build on the very loose mm-hmm. backstory we got from Yeah, and so the other thing, I didn't like the backstory. I didn't want any more. I was, I was pleased yeah. when Where Paranormal 1 left off yeah. because uh, I think that mystery... Yeah. Uh, made it all the more eerie. Yeah. What was it that drew this demonic entity to uh, Katie ever since she was an eight-year-old girl? You know, so yeah. just leave it alone. Yeah, it's like she's out there haunting the world. Mm. <laughs> and it's like not just her, but also her sister. And so it's like, does the demon go on and mm-hmm. then go haunt her sister and torment her next? And you know why but yeah like you're leaving it open-ended i think is a lot more interesting and tantalizing than all the garbage that came out yeah for sure you know let's um my my uh paranormal activity story and why this film resonates with me so much um i remember when it first released 
uh, here in the city. Um, A friend of mine, uh, one of my close friends uh, and her husband, the three of us all went to go see this movie and we went, it was a midnight release and it was on the big screen out at the IMAX theater and we go out there and it's uh, midnight showing and it was sold out. Uh-huh. I remember. So, I mean, the theater, big auditorium is packed. And I mean, what made that movie... I mean, it was already scary. Yeah. But what made it so much greater of a film experience was the reactions. Mm-hmm. I mean, you talk about the screams and the <laughs> hollers and the oh my gods and all of that that you yeah. were getting with all the scare tactics of the film. I mean, it was absolutely um, amazing because... And some of the leading up uh, scares that we see, mm-hmm. um, you know, you could hear a pin drop yeah. in that auditorium of 300 people. And I mean, and then when the bad stuff happens, <laughs> you know, it sounded like the roof was about to be raised off that place. Right. Yeah. And I hadn't watched this movie in a couple of years. And so even watching it anew, you know, as we did, um, it was still really scary. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and it was one of those, you know, um, you know, if you can, uh, if they ever do a re-release, go see it in theaters. You get a completely different experience. It was one of those, you know, I didn't want to go home that night because back then I lived alone. <laughs> and I just, it was, it did that. But I think watching it from home mm-hmm. kind of has a different scary feeling to it you're in your house yeah you know you turn the movie off you got to go to bed sometime <laughs> you got to sleep sometime you got to sleep so <laughs> you know paranormal activity that was my haunted house movie i thought it did great is uh, you know the little engine that could type of story we never saw uh, the two actors again after that. Um, I guess they cashed their checks and <laughs> went on to happier times. Yeah. Um, paranormal activity. Um, on a scale of one to five, I would give it a four also. Yeah, I think I would. I feel confident giving it a four as well. I don't know if I would necessarily call it a perfect movie, but it was definitely effective. It was effective. Mm-hmm. I think... Um, there was not um, I didn't get bored much through it I think in the amount of time it was edited just right Mm -hmm. um, to where you didn't get bored with it Um, you got enough dialogue Mm -hmm. with the two characters that Mm -hmm. you're actually invested in it by the time um, you know the, the house turns on everyone so yeah and the way that the demon manifests itself it's gradual and each time it shows up it's a little bit more than the last time Mm -hmm. so you get like this sense of ramping up and like what's going to happen next and what's going to happen next and how bad is it going to be next so like it keeps your attention and keeps you wanting to hang around yes yeah two the two scariest parts in the film for me Mm -hmm. um most definitely um when the unseen spirit comes and pulls Katie out of bed Mm -hmm. and then out of the bedroom and the bedroom door slams Mm -hmm. that's scary 
that was just scary. Yeah. I think every <laughs> that kind of takes you to your own bedroom, and you kind of think that could that could easily happen. At that yeah. point, you know it's not sleep paralysis. There is definitely <laughs> something wicked in this house. Yeah, and like for me, I think that I think two of the scariest things are like when you see the footsteps moving through the powder and they're yeah. moving faster towards you and yeah. you hear the yeah. thumping moving towards you faster yeah. and then like when she leaves the room at one point and she goes downstairs and all of a sudden you hear this god awful scream and it oh, sounds that like scream stays with you it sounds like a like a, the, the chorus of hell is yes. screaming along with yes. her and it's just <laughs> yes that is such a good definition for that <laughs> i mean it, yeah that that scream is just really i think there's only two screams in film mm. that have ever just really really messed me up mm. and uh the the first one was um and i know we'll talk about this later um as our sh- little show goes on but um the the first one most definitely was in uh, hereditary whenever she finds her daughter's decapitated body and she screams and screams and you can feel the emotion from a hundred miles away at how that had to hit her like a ton of bricks midsummer screen no well you know what the first one i tell you that the hereditary really got to me yeah but her yeah the after she finds out that the parents and the sister are dead in midsummer that boy you could feel a lot of like she was just gonna her guts were just gonna come yeah. out of her mouth because but, she was so emotional <laughs> her and tony collette both like their insides were gonna come outside my god dead. yeah Ooh. talk about you know character getting into character jeez but the second one is paranormal activity yeah. um when she starts screaming for Mika and all that, uh, you know it ain't going to be good. Mm-mm. What is going on downstairs? It's a trap. Yeah. <laughs> and, of course, the second scariest scene in the movie for me, and I wish everybody could have experienced in the packed auditorium theater, was in the very end when he's thrown at the camera oh, out of yeah. nowhere. Nobody yeah. saw that coming. Yeah. I mean everybody was six feet off the ground after that (laughs) happened it was amazing yeah there it's like whenever you go see a horror movie in the theater it's always kind of like a hit and miss like Mm -hmm. is it going to be packed and if it's packed is it going to be filled with teenagers because that's always the worst kind of audience oh god that's going to be a show on our own that we do don't get me started (laughs) on i've got a story that everybody who's known me for more than a year has heard my ranting story about a movie theater and teenagers and i didn't get my refund and all that but we'll delve into that later that's a tale for another time yes well so I, I think we're out of time yeah i think we've both discussed our movies and depth and gotten to express all the opinions now, that we can. now we get to go to bed yeah in this house yeah and turn all the lights off oh my i'm sleeping with the night light on tonight and i'll be sticking my foot out from under the covers and see what happens mm. <laughs>
I don't, I don't like it. I, I get don't hot. Like it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, Elsa. So, what are we going to talk about next week? Next week, I think we'll be talking about witches. Ooh, witches. Witches. Okay. Yeah. So, we will be back next week with another spooky good time. Uh, hopefully, you'll come back next week. We're a very lame couple. There's nothing really exciting. So, that's why we, we invest so much in these movies. We try to live through the characters in those. Yeah. <laughs> I mean... <laughs> It is what it is. It is what it is. <laughs> and on that note, goodbye, my friends. And good night. <laughs> <laughs>